Thank you, Dennis. Let's try that again. Good morning. There we go. Um, before we get going, I just wanted to, to point out a friend of mine who's here all the way from New Hampshire, Holland Pryor. Would you just give a little wave right over there? Holland, as many of you might remember, is an ordained pastor in the Wesleyan Church, used to be on staff here, and uh, wants to say hello to all of you. So we're just going to take 20 minutes. You go ahead and say it. No, I'm kidding. Um, so it wants to say hello to all of you here and, and was able to join us this morning. So Holland, we're so glad that you're here and uh, it's great to see you again. Um, this morning we are in a series on the book of Ephesians and we're just going to dig right into it because we're going on one of the less preached passages in the book of Ephesians this morning. In fact, I was trying to figure it out. I was trying to think, who, who preaches this passage? And I, you know, there's sermons that you could find online, and I don't do any of that. It's too hard to, like, take somebody else's sermon. I always write on my own. But um, I, I was searching, and I could barely find anybody who had written sermons on this passage just because I was curious who else worked with this passage. They're out there. Um, there's just not too many of them. So, uh, so one thing today is an exciting day. We celebrate new life, but we also have this passage of Scripture that's a little bit uncommon for us to, to uh, work with, but we're just going to dig right into it. It's Ephesians 6, 1 through 9, and uh, so if you need a Bible, we've got them in the back. Uh, just wave your hand, and we will come and hand you a Bible. Um, in fact, I'll tell a, a quick little story. I hope I'm not ruining anything, Jerry, but Bibles are really important. Um, you never know. You give someone to, give a Bible to someone, they might start reading it, and... Um, you know, maybe they'll start following Jesus. We've had some stories um, that way uh, recently. So if you need a Bible, we've got them. If you have Bibles at home and you don't need one, just hand it back when you're done and give it to the people in the back or some of the ushers. If you don't have a Bible, put your name in this one. It's yours. Take it home with you. So Ephesians chapter 6, we're looking at verses 1 through 9. You are going to see why this is one of the less preached passages. Let's get into it. Children, obey your parents. All right, we could stop right there, right? Like, never mind. Use that one all day. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that you may, so that it may go well with you, and and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. I mean, it's kind of not a promise; it's kind of a threat, right? It's like honor your mother and mother, or else. Okay. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And then it goes in, this is why this is a less preached passage. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when, when their eye is not on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God for, in your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he is both their master and yours in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So like I said, this is a hardly preached passage, and maybe you could see why. Because it gets controversial, and people have taken those passages and done some horrific horrible things with them. But we're going to talk about the actual, what Paul was doing in this passage and why it made this passage even kind of revolutionary and 
eventually Roman slavery would end under some of these very same tenets and principles. So let's get into it um, this morning. <clears throat> the first thing we're going to do um, is kind of take a look back on the book of Ephesians and see what Paul is doing here. Paul is the author of Ephesians. He's an apostle. He's writing to these churches that he had helped birth. And in the church in Ephesus is one of them. There was this collection, probably about four or five, maybe six churches that were around um, Ephesus. And Paul is writing them this letter to, in order for it to be circulated and in order to build up the congregation. And so one of the first things that he does is reveals God's big plan. And he says, God's big plan is to bring everything that is in heaven and earth under his authority. Everything that is in heaven and earth under Christ. So that's the first big idea. And then the second, chapter 2, the idea is that Jesus wants you to be forgiven, reconciled, restored back to him. And in fact, when you do that, when you surrender your life to Jesus, when you put your confidence in Jesus, then what he does is he makes you into a new humanity. In fact, it says in there, it says, this, the purpose for this is that you would be made into a new kind of human and then gathered into a new community called the church. And so there's this great, huge purpose laid out in the book of Ephesians for the community of God that's not like other communities. And what's interesting about this is we think about human community and how much has failed over the years. Why do we have great massive wars? Human communities, human constructs of community have failed. Communism, that was huge, and not for us in America, but the world, communism failed. That was a human construct of community. Fascism, for much of Europe, a human construct of community, it failed. And even now, in recent days, we're seeing um, in 2008, many people said, oh, I think uh, capitalism's going to fail. Another a human economic setup of community. All human community fails. But what Paul is saying is this human community now organized as a new humanity under God does not fail. In fact, through all these failures of human community, God has been there. For all these failures of human community, the church has withstood and the church has grown and the church has thrived. So the amazing thing about this book of Ephesians that we're, we've been digging through this last month is that it lays out this plan for all new community, which is the church. It's redemptive community. In here, we ought to be re- redeemed people. In here, we ought to forgive each other. In here, we ought to do some amazing things. We ought to pray for healing. We ought to pray for God to move. We ought to pray for some great, amazing things. In here, it's different. And then the big point is that we take in here out there. Is that we don't let in here stay in here. And then what Paul wanted to do here was he wanted to talk about these other little human-constructed things that we have. Not really human-constructed. Marriage isn't really human-constructed. It's God-made. But he wanted to talk about these three institutions and talk about God's plan in it. So last week, we talked about marriage and how important that is because Paul talks all about that in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 21. Pastor Earl did a great job digging through that. So we saw marriage looked at last week. And then in the following uh, week today, we see children's. And then the next institution that Paul was dealing with was slavery. And we're going to talk a little bit about that, why it's different from American slavery and European slavery. But let's get in first into children and parents. 
So let's look at the first four verses, and I'll read them again, and, and just listen carefully. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may well go, go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in training and instruction of the Lord. So the first point that it makes is actually children obey. Which is really interesting. I want to tell you a quick story. One day I was doing a wedding, actually, for a family member. And I was doing this wedding, and somebody came up to me, and I was using Ephesians 5. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And we talked about what that means. Submitting is this willful giving of one another to each other. So you willfully give yourself over to the other person. And both of you are called to do that in a marriage relationship. And so I talked about that in the midst of their ceremony. And somebody came up to me afterwards and said, Pastor, that was, that was a very nice sermon that you gave, but didn't, don't you mean o- obey? And I said, no, absolutely not. No, that's not the word. Actually, Paul had this word in his vocabulary. People who abuse these verses on marriage want to say Paul called husbands uh, or women to obey their wives. That's not what he said at all. The word is submit. And we know that Paul had this word obey in his vocabulary because he calls this in the father-son or parent-children relationship, not in the husband-wife relationship. So the first thing I want to do is show this contrast. Husband and wives, he says, submit. Children, you have to obey your parents. And there's great reason for that. We know just, I mean, through, uh, um, what is it called? Human brain psychology, something brain psychology. Somebody in here is like a PhD, probably like brain science, and they're going to, they're just going to beat me up afterwards on this. But um, we know that human, in human development, that your brain isn't fully developed yet. In fact, um, not all of you, your kids, your kids' brains are not fully developed yet. So males, it's like the age 21, 22. Females, it's the age 18, that your frontal lobe is developed. And so why do you obey your parents? You can't, you literally cannot make that rational choice. You cannot make great decisions yet. Now, some kids can because they've got great parents and they've, they've been trained to make these good decisions. And they've had this training through life to make good decisions. And it, but this is why Paul and the Bible even says, children, obey your parents. Your frontal lobe, it's the brain. It's not even developed yet. They're, the ability to reason and use, uh, use reason and rational thinking isn't fully developed until some of those later ages. Some of you know people where their frontal lobe just stopped developing. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm like, did your, my pastor said, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> so it's the word obey for children. Obey your parents because they literally don't know the right moves to make yet. And as parents, you need to loan them your frontal lobe and help them make these good decisions. It's very important. And even as youth pastors and people in this church who, who um, follow Jesus when we have teenagers around, they're great kids. They're smart. They're smarter than you could ever think of. But sometimes we need to help loan our frontal lobes out and say, is that the best move? Because when you ask that type of question, it, may, it implants that question in their head. And they, later on, when something else comes up, they go, oh, is that the best move? They learn fast. They're good kids. I'm a big advocate of teenagers. I think being a teenager is great. Anyways, um, oh yeah, 
The other thing I want to talk about, why it's important that we teach children obey. When we model the kind of life that is centered around Jesus for our kids, we have to remember that teaching our kids is not going to be like sitting them down and saying, okay, I want to go over our values with you. It's when you get pulled over by a cop and you are so mad because you swear you didn't do something wrong and you're fuming and you got your kids in the back seat. It's saying, Daddy did something wrong. Daddy gets to get in trouble too, just like you get in trouble at home. You know, instead of telling that cop what you really think. Randy, sorry. I happen to know a police officer is sitting in the audience today, so I better watch it. Um... <laughs> No, you, you, you have to model this for your kids because they have to make good decisions probably. I mean, they've got to make good decisions at an early age, but we think about it, 21 is a drinking age, but then you go back and, and 18, society sort of looks at kids as adults, and then you go back from there and they could drive at 16. And how scary is that, right? I was driving around at 16. Um, but then before that, they could reproduce. They could have kids. And it's happening more and more that teenagers are having babies. Actually, the instance has dropped a little bit over the years, but it's, it's still happening. Kids are having sex younger. So probably by age 11 or 14, we need to teach them to make good decisions. This is why I think Paul says, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for it is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. Why was it the first commandment <coughs> with a promise? We're talking about this is Paul is referencing the Ten Commandments about honor your father and mother. And what he is simply saying here is, listen, you're all living in the desert. If you don't honor your father and mother, you have no way of living. If you get cast out of this, you're going, the desert is for you, buddy. There is no way to live outside of the relationship of your parents. Your parents feed you, clothe you, house you, so honor them, and it will go right with you. But then... Um, well, actually, I want to talk about influence real quick, about parental influence and why this is so important for us to maintain influence with our kids. And I've shown this chart before, but I want to show it again. Um, there we go. And you, you, I'll lay this out for a second. So ages 0 to 11, parents, we're that blue line. We have all the influence in the world, everything. But do you see what happens right around age 11? Who gets more influence than us? Friends, right? And for some, it happens earlier and earlier. So this is why it's important for us to maintain influence in those younger years to teach our kids our faith, to pass our faith on. So in those situations where you get pulled over, in those situations where you have a fight, in those situations where life is tough, that you begin to share your values with your kids, when they're paying attention and listening the most, you tell them, honey, this is why we do this. Son, this is why we're doing this. Kids, because we want to honor God with our lives, this is why we go to church every week. Kids, because we want to grow together as community, this is why we do this. I mean, it's your values down. I mean, this is simply what the Bible says. Teach a child the way they should go, and when they're older, they will not depart from it. When you give your influence up there longer term, see, you want your kids to be the influencers, and so longer term, your kids are influencing with your values. Does that make sense? Your kids will be influencing with your values. And so one of the things that Paul says is, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. 
So this is revolutionary in the first century, in first century churches, because usually fathers were the ones that dealt with their children. Mothers didn't actually have as much influence over their children as fathers had, because it was the father who at birth, if he recognized you, would allow you to essentially become human. You were not recognized as a, a human being as alive until your father recognized your birth, which, by the way, has huge implications when we talk about the theology of adoption and stuff like that, adoption into sonship, which uh, Paul talks a lot about in the book of Romans. But it was the father that made that decision. And then it was the father who usually punished the children. And the way punishment looked in a first century home was if you did something wrong, you're getting a beating. And not just any beating. It could have been a broken leg. It could have been, I mean, what we would call CPS on today and say, somebody is getting abused over there. That's the type of beating people would get in order to get, I don't know, um, in order to do the right thing. That's the way they'd be trained. And so what would kids do when they became older and they had kids? They'd beat their kids. And so one of the things Paul says is do not exasperate them. In other words, don't take them to this point to where they hate you. In other words, love them and show them, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. This would have been absolutely countercultural in the first century. It would have been absolutely different than what anybody else was doing. But Paul called husbands and wives to love each other. That was very different. And then he called parents and children to, to, to literally have this relationship based on love, based on training and instruction. In order to train someone and instruct them, you have to kind of love them, right? You have to invest in them. And so you grow to love them even more. And so what he says is don't exasperate them, but train them, instruct them, show them the right things to do. Use yourself as an example and show these kids how to do it. I think what Paul is really trying to say here is that love always works better than fear. Always. Love always works better than fear. One of the things we know from child psychology is that kids are like, if just as a metaphor, are like love tanks. Actually, all people are like love tanks, but kids are like love tanks. And imagine a tank, you know, it's like a, just like a, you know, a big tank, I guess. I don't know how, any better way to say it, like a big jar. And they need love in order to function properly. And it's our job to fill them with that until they understand how to fill, them, fill it with themselves and show them the right places to get it so that when they're teenagers, they don't go to all the wrong places to get it. It's our job to show them that. And so as we fill up their love tanks all the time, as they're older, they know the right thing that fills up their love tank. But instead, parents were trying to use fear and intimidation with children. And what Paul's saying is, hey, this isn't right. In fact, you know, even among Aristotle, one of the things that we do to judge Scripture is we look at like all the other contemporary writers like Aristotle and, and, and people like that, Paul's like the only guy saying this stuff. There's nobody else at the time saying, hey, maybe you shouldn't beat your children. Hey, maybe you shouldn't beat the snot out of them and exasperate them. Maybe you should train them. There's very few other people talking this way in the first century time. So love always works better than fear. And I think the big question here is, do you have a life worth imitating? 
Parents, would it be a good thing for your kids to be running around looking just like you, reacting the way you react, talking the way that you talk? Would that be a good thing? Because I think that's what Paul is really getting at here. Do you have a life worth imitating? Okay. We're going to switch gears for a second, and we're going to deal with this issue of slavery that Paul talks about, because it's it seems oddly placed if you don't understand first century slavery. So we're going to dig right into it. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor in their eyes, but their eye is on you. I'm sorry, when their eye is not on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that it is he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Now, one of the things that I've always asked when I've read this verse, because I just hadn't really studied it the way I studied it this, this in the last few weeks, is why wouldn't Paul just call, carte blanche call for the end of slavery. Like, why wouldn't he just say, this is an evil institution, this is wrong? Why would he write about this in the Bible? Well, one, he didn't really know he was writing the Bible at the time. He was writing a letter to this church that dealt with slavery. But why wouldn't he call for it? And I think there's some major differences that need to be stated, because this is one of the things that the critics of the Bible like to use. Oh, the Bible condones slavery. Well, there's a lot of different forms of slavery. So one of the things we want to be clear about is first century slavery in many forms was voluntary. In fact, there are, um, we know that the mayor of Ephesus voluntarily placed himself in indentured servitude or slavery to another wealthy person in order to clear some of his debts. It was a voluntary thing. There are some people, and Paul condemns them in the book of 1 Timothy, who are kidnappers or slave traders, who go on boats and kidnap people for the purpose of slavery. Paul condemns them as evil in the book of 1 Timothy. So this is a little bit of a different thing that we're talking about. In the first century, this is an economic system or way of life. It's really a business. And many people looked at slavery in the first century. It was, first of all, it was not racial at all. Anybody, any one of us, could, could have been in slavery in the first century. It was economic. If you had a debt, then you could place yourself in the debt of that person and be a slave to that person, and you could work that debt out. Now, I will say that for this, any slavery is awful because a lot of it had sexual elements to it, and there was abuse for women, on, very unfortunately. And it, it was still, it, you should never own anybody, obviously. But what slavery in the first century was, was a agreed-upon time where there would be an ending for you to work off your debt. That's sort of what it was. Whereas first century slavery was an ideology that one person group is better than another person group. In fact, exactly, they said that, that African Americans were three-fifths human. So there was an actual ideology to this, an actual math to it, there were some people said. And so they're very different systems. So I think that Paul writing and just knowing the, the, the writings of the Apostle Paul, knowing the work of the Scripture, I am 
positive that if he would have seen American slavery, he would have called for the outright just ending of that system and the, and the abolishment of it. This was so intertwined into the economic system, first century slavery, that it was almost like a job. It was almost like going to work. And in fact, many people voluntarily submitted themselves to slavery for the same reasons that you hear people say, oh, I'm, I mean, this isn't the same thing, it's just the reasons. Oh, I'm going into the military because I could get an education, I could make some money, and I could come out better. There's numerous examples of, of people who went in because they were out of options, they went into slavery, and they actually came out better because they had a good relationship with their master at the time, and they allowed them a plot of land, and they were able to work off their debt and live freely. So we're talking two different systems of slavery. And people that like to get in on the Bible and criticize it just carte blanche don't understand these major cultural differences. And so these are two different things, American first, um, 20, 19th, 18th century um, slavery, two different things than things in first century slavery. But the point of all of this, I think the big point of what Paul is doing here is he's reminding those who are slaveholders or who have power over another that you are all equal in God's eyes, that God doesn't show favoritism. He talks about slaves obeying your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. See, they're saying, and, and actually many commentators simply say, um, first century slavery is akin to work a lot of, in a lot of ways. So those of you who call your boss a slave driver, I mean, there's, there's, some, there's some similarities to this in the first century. Not all of them. There were definitely, um, definitely bad situations in slavery. Definitely not a good thing. Never a good thing to own anybody. But there was more um, similarities to somebody who works today and to first century slavery. Because that's really what it was in many, many cases. Um, but it talks about obeying them to win favor in their, so that their eye is on you. Obey them. And it talks about having this type of integrity. And, and you know, to think about probably the most modern way to translate this into our culture is work. We think about do we act the same way around our bosses as not around our bosses? Once we leave that meeting, do we trash talk the decisions they've made? Do we say, oh, this guy's just a moron? Or you know, what do we do? How do we handle ourselves? Do we handle ourselves with integrity? Do we work as if we're serving God, not man? And I think that's the key to this verse. Paul is saying, work as if you're serving God and not man. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. I mean, he just spells it out. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And so what Paul does here is he's saying, listen, your human society, our human societies place a value on people, whether they're slave or free, and, so, and it's wrong, but they do this. But God is a great equalizer, and he will look at both of you and judge each of you according to what you do. So for you, as long as you are responsible for you, show this person kindness. Be merciful. 
Show kingdom values. I mean, this is almost like when Jesus was preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. It's like saying, if somebody wants to sue you and take your cloak, give them your tunic as well, or if somebody gives your, your, um, makes you carry their pack for a mile, by the way, they didn't use miles back then either, but if somebody takes your pack for a mile, make, walk two miles with them. The point is to surprise this person with kindness. Now, some of the other examples aren't exactly for that. But to, to show this person this different kind of kingdom that you live in. What it looks like to follow Jesus. So what Paul does in this, and the reason why he uses slavery, is because Paul takes these three main institutions that were alive in the first century. Marriage. And he radically transforms it into an institution of love. Because marriage before this idea of Christian marriage was not based on love at all. It was based on women serving men. And what Paul did is he radically equalized it and said, no, this is mutual submission to one another. He took parenting, which was this system of abuse, really. And he said, no, love each other. Have your life, make a life worthy of imitation so that your kids will grow up with the right values. And he took slavery, and what he did is he said, masters and slaves, you are equal in the Lord's sight. So be kind, be respectful. And then he even says, and masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them. By the way, that would have been pretty radical in the first century. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. By the way, in, you know, we ask, why didn't this just end? Why didn't Paul just say this needs to end? Well, we have to remember Christianity was super small at this time. And it took a few hundred years for these Christian values to get embedded into the life of the community. And once these Christian values did get embedded in the life of the community, the emperor actually banned slavery in Rome, I think around the 400 A.D., He banned slavery for this very idea that slave and master were equal in God's sight. And he banned it because of the principles and the values that were laid out in here. Now, we know that in the 1800s, some people took these verses and they just stepped all over them and they did horrible things and they condoned slavery and they did awful things. But what Paul does is he radically reorganizes it. So one of the points I want to end with, and we've got this series coming up called Bold is Love, and that's going to be in the month of August, and it, it's, we're coming into it. But one of the points I want to end with is a point I'm going to make in that series, is as a church now, we are different than we were a church 15, 20 years ago. And that is where we used to be and enjoy favoritism in our culture, where we used to enjoy that most people understood and had a Christian worldview, where we used to know and understand that most people just did what was right biblically, or they knew what was right. Now, we are a church in exile. We have more in common now with Moses in Egypt. We have more in common now with Ezekiel in Babylon. We have more in common now with the the Jews in exile than we do from a church that's strength in our culture. So we now have to lead as if we are in exile. And you look at the book of Daniel. How did Daniel do it? He led from the margins. 
He honored God in every way possible in his life in a culture that hated it. And people came to follow God. Even Nebuchadnezzar, the king, came to follow God at one point. And so in these three institutions, this is a church that is in exile. This is a church that the community looked nothing like the values of the church. And what Paul is saying is when you organize your life around Jesus, when Jesus is at the center of your marriage, when he's at the center of your relationship with your kids, when Jesus is at the center of your work life, that'll be so radical in an exiled world that people will come to know Jesus, that people will want what you have, that they'll want to understand that grace that you live with, that they'll want to understand that love that that is deep inside you, embedded in you. They'll want to understand that, and they'll want to ask you about that. So we're a church that probably has to lead from the margins from now on. I mean, I think the last Supreme Court case really showed that quite well, that we no longer as a church have the position in society. We are now a church in exile. And that'll be an August series, and we're going to get a lot more into that. But my point is, in these three institutions, and we're just going to, because of the, the similarities between work, that sounds funny to say, but the similarities between work and first century slavery, we're going to say work. But in your marriage, in your life with your children, and in your work, do you organize your life around Jesus? Do you showcase these values? Do you show people what it's like to follow Jesus? Do they understand these kingdom values of forgiveness, restoration, love, mutual submission, peace? What will you choose? Do you show that? I want to end simply by praying, but maybe there's some of you here today who simply need to say, I need to reorganize my life around Jesus. My life is too organized around me. My life is too organized around this other stuff. Maybe it's too organized around work. Maybe it's just too organized. I mean, where you organize your life, that's what your life's going to look like. So I want to encourage you. Maybe, maybe you follow Jesus, but you've never accepted him as your teacher. Maybe you come to church, but that's just for Sundays. Maybe you love your family, but not with the love of Jesus. I want to simply challenge you to organize your life around Jesus. Maybe that just simply looks like you, you pick up the Gospels. You know, you, you, you go to the Gospel of Matthew and you just start reading and saying, Jesus, what would you have for my life? Maybe it's that simple that you just do that on a daily basis. I want to challenge you to do that because in the years to come will be a church in America that will be in the margins and we'll need to learn to lead that way. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to organize our lives around you. Father, in all these institutions, in the institution of marriage, and in family, and in work, Father, help us to to simply put you first. Lord, the book of Ephesians, you know, I believe you directed what Paul wrote. And God, it talks a lot about this idea of new humanity, of new creation. Lord, help us to live into that. Help us to not do what the world expects. Help us not to just simply sit around and condemn things as wrong, but help us to offer something better. Lord, walk with us. 
Lord, the only way that we could do this is by your power and yours alone. Would you speak to us now and help us to organize our lives around you, Jesus. We pray. Amen.